Welcome to HB TV. I'm Harry Binswanger, the HB in HB TV, talking today with an impoverished technology. My super camera and great microphone are not working. I think it's, uh, I think I know the problem, but we're just doing regular old laptop with blur my background. So today is uh, Ask Harry, it's taking up questions that have accumulated and new questions that may arise. And the first one is from Jose. How do most get through life with hardly any conscious ideas of concept formation and logic? How do most develop a quote, bare minimum psychoepistemology? Psychoepistemology is Ayn Rand's term for the method of thinking that you have automatized. So the question is, how do most people develop a, um, an adequate but minimal method of thinking to get through life? Well, the answer to both is a gentleman known as Aristotle. Now, 2,500 years after Aristotle, his logic has penetrated the culture to an extent that it's impossible to uh, project or very difficult to project what it would be like to live in a culture without logic or any conscious ideas of uh, any, any uh, implicit ideas of concept formation. Uh, I'll give you an example of what it is, though, because I read an article in Science Magazine about in 1969. I have the article somewhere. It was about school children in India. Now, this is the India of 1969. School children in India learning about various things. For instance, they learned that Thunder was caused by a static electrical discharge in the, in the clouds. They learned that in school. But they also thought that thunder was caused by the jangling of Indra's bangles. The goddess Indra or Indira, whatever it is, her bangles jangle and that's thunder. And they didn't see any conflict between the two. They had not internalized Aristotle's law of non-contradiction. So they saw no problem in holding two absolutely contradictory views of what thunder is and just emitting one sometimes when asked and other, the other other times. So Aristotle's contribution has permeated our culture and of course, science and technology now. So you have to use computers, you have to be logical to an extent that it is almost unimaginable. But if you went back before Aristotle to a pre-Aristotelian culture, and really you have to go back before all the Greeks. So before about 600 BC or at that time in say Egypt, the people wouldn't have gotten through life 
with hardly any conscious ideas of concept formation and logic. I mean, there was life expectancy was 30. Primitive people don't live like we do. They don't succeed. They don't know what they're doing. They follow their authorities and their authorities don't know what they're doing. So there's enough Aristotelian philosophy in the culture, particularly American culture, that uh, people develop a bare minimum methodology. Now you don't have to know the what concept formation is to be uh, an, a basically successful thinker. You will suffer as everybody does today from picking up everybody, but you know, conscientious objectivists picking up the latest slang jargon neologisms that are often package deals and going with them as if they were valid because they don't know, no one other than objectivists knows the principle that a concept must be based on fundamentals, on fundamental similarities and differences based ultimately on perception of reality through the senses. So they just pick up the latest uh, jargon. Uh, what's the um, the uh, the latest one? Um, I mean, woke. What does woke mean? What does uh, sustainable mean? These things are mental chewing gum. They don't have any specific meaning. They're not logical. Even a, a concept now about 30, 40 years old, like the homeless. The homeless is not a proper concept. The, it, it was not ever heard before about the 80s. It's a concept designed to create the impression that bums are in the same situation as somebody right after a flood has hit his home and he doesn't have a place to live from for a few days. It's not a class of people called the homeless. That is a, an improper concept. There are people who are in the state of homelessness and then the question is why? Uh, at the very first episode of this series, I attacked the idea of evolutionary psychology because it's based upon the assumption that man does not have free will, and he does. So the, the whole idea of a field that studies man as if his behavior is his behavior, you know, like what I'm now saying, is shaped by natural selection in the way the behavior of birds and dogs and uh, fish are, is an illogical, self-refuting conclusion. What about that contradiction? The contradiction, well, what people think is determined by biological forces, not by their independent thinking, except what I'm saying right now, as a, you have to trust me, a biologist, I'm not just saying what I'm uh, selected to say, I'm saying what's objective. Oh, 
contradiction. Unless you think biologists are supermen who are not part of the human race. So when they talk about you, the rest of us, they say, well, you gods, you're forced to believe what natural selection makes you believe. But I, um, I'm better than that. So uh, they don't get through life so successfully. There's an awful lot of unhappiness there, uh, here in this, in this country. And, uh, but they're able to get along better than the school children in India in 69, who embraced open contradictions without seeing any problem in doing so. So the answer is there's enough Aristotelianism to let people muddle through. But to really succeed and be happy and creative, you do need to understand logic. And to not fall for propaganda, you do need explicit training in proper epistemology, which doesn't exist today, outside of reading Ayn Rand's work and going to the Ayn Rand Institute's Ayn Rand University courses. Okay, uh, let's see, the next one. Michael. What were the holes in Aristotle that had been exploited? He had no theory of concepts is the biggest. Well, there's two biggest because there's two biggest issues. His theory of concepts was, well, Plato's not right. And the skeptics are not right. There is in each uh, concrete that we put together under a category as a concept like all the tables or all the dogs or all the cookies or all the acts of combustion. It doesn't have to be concrete entities. There is something the same in them. And it's an essence. What is that essence? Well, he never said. Or let's put it this way. In the texts of Aristotle that have survived, he doesn't explain. So he, his view is, look, you can tell what makes a thing be a table. The what it is to be, the thing, is its essence. And the concept refers to that, not to something in another dimension and not to nothing, but there is the what it is to be a dog, what it is to be burning, what it is to be 17, I mean, the number. And he, that the actual Greek is toti and anai. And that's the word we translate essence. The what it is to be. So we can just know the what it is to be of a thing. He also assumed that it would be identical in all the concretes. But that's the thing that sank not just Aristotle, but his successor or, or descendant, John Locke. John Locke also assumed that the attribute, he didn't believe in essence, he had made progress in that way. The attributes that go along with what it is to be something, 
are all identical. So he says the same whiteness being observed today in chalk that was observed yesterday in snow, we give it the name, anything that has that attribute, white. Oh, that's nice. But what about if you take blue? Whites all seem pretty much the same until you get to a paint store. But what about blue? The same blue being observed today in the sky than yesterday in a blueberry? No, they're not the same at all. The blue in a certain dye, you know, the certain blue, the blue in um, Gainsborough's blue boy, the blue of a robin's egg, they're all different blues. And if that's not bad enough, what about the concept color? You can't say the same color being observed today in a fire truck that was observed yesterday in a blueberry. It's not the same color, it's a different color. Or the same quantity being observed today in a group of two that was observed yesterday in a group of 100. It's not the same quantity. So Locke had no way of embracing differences. And the basic failing of all of them before Ayn Rand was that they face the alternative of either you try to say that the distinguishing characteristic that lets you classify things together is the same, identical, in all the things you put in that category. Or you say, well, there's, it's just convention. There's nothing the same. And you're a subjectivist. And there isn't anything the same in in the concrete, the whole purpose of it, of a concept is to embrace minor differences. When there's a bigger difference, you're contrasting it. So colors seem very different until you contrast them to size. Oh, colors are all one kind of thing, but size, which I see visually, is another kind of thing, or darkness and lightness. Yeah, that's different from color. And visual attributes are different from hearing attributes and touch attributes. So there are differences that swamp lesser differences. And that's the um, one way of looking at Ayn Rand's theory of concept formation. So the holes in his theory was he had no way to say, look, there are right concepts and wrong concepts. There are concepts based on fundamental similarities and concepts based on superficial ones. Let me give you, well, I've given all those examples. A guy who's homeless, not a member of the homeless, but a guy who has no home because a plane just crashed into his house. And now he has to find a place to live for the night. That, and a guy who sets up a, a blanket and a shopping cart on the sidewalk and puts out a sign to beg and doesn't have a home too. Those have nothing in common. Uh, so uh, until, you, until you know how to defend the objectivity of the way you form concepts, you can't avoid a mishmash that stultifies all thinking and makes you believe 
things are opposite to what they really are. I won't go into why that latter because it takes a little development. Um, going on to Michael's another one. How will the internet break the university stranglehold on the intellect? There seems to be as little reason online as there is in the universities. Although ARI and Jerome Brook have achieved a lot of success online. Uh, because, I mean, I don't know that the internet will break the stranglehold of the, uh, the uh, universities. Let me say a word about that stranglehold first. In sheerly political terms, which is a last consequence of deeper philosophical ideas, the universities have been leftist as long as I've been uh, out of my early teens and probably before, and I just didn't know it. I was in, uh, at MIT in uh, 1964 when Goldwater ran against Johnson. Now Goldwater in the end got, I believe 36% of the popular vote, which sounds pretty bad until you learn that they took a straw poll at Radcliffe College, which was in the women's division of Harvard, they've merged now. So it's Harvard for women. They took a poll, straw poll there, and Goldwater got 8%. Johnson, you know, what a wonderful man he turned out to be, right? Very charismatic figure, I'm being sarcastic, got 92%. And the reason was, the leftism of Harvard. So the stranglehold has only intensified since then. The um, universities then were what we would call today uh, liberal, except there aren't any liberals anymore. They were not anywhere near what the new left or the woke left or the angry left uh, has made of them. They were. They were bad to elect, they were solidly bad, but to a lesser degree. So that was the strangle. Now, will the internet break it? It's got to help. And the um, model here or the precedent is the Reformation. The Reformation in starting with Martin Luther and embracing all those Protestant sects, broke the Catholic Church's monopoly on uh, ideas, on philosophy or theology or ideology. In Europe, before, uh, before the, Refer uh, the um, Reformation, There was only, Christianity was Catholicism and everybody was a Christian unless they were a Jew. And if they were Jew, they were probably in a ghetto. So you might think, well, progress was made, right? With the Reformation, better ideas came out. No, the Catholic Church was philosophically better than Martin Luther. Martin Luther said, 
Reason is the devil's whore. Strangle reason, break its neck. Faith is the only uh, answer. And he was a determinist and pro-dictatorship. So the Reformation, I mean, just going back to Luther, they were all various degrees of bad and worse than the church. They were turned back to St. Augustine, rebelling against the good influence of Thomas Aquinas, who brought Aristotle back into the uh, intellectual world, made him respectable. So it was actually worse in content, but it broke the monopoly. And that in itself led a lot of people to think and realize that religion itself was the problem. So, you know, today I ask people, isn't it amazing how everyone on earth was you know, there's about 200 religions, but everyone on earth had the good fortune to be born into the right one. You know, to get people thinking about, well, I guess, you know, I, I say religion, but I mean Methodism that I was raised in and I've only adopted it. I could have been raised something else. You know, I only adopted it unthinkingly. Maybe I should look at some other religions. And that leads to maybe I should look at atheism. So breaking a stranglehold, breaking an intellectual monopoly, even with lousy content, can be a good thing. But it's far better if there's good content. And my final point is that the internet allows the rational few to get together and learn from each other. The universities do not allow that. So, uh, for instance, and I mean the whole academic world. I wrote an article, there was a competition in the 70s when I was teaching at Hunter College in New York. And the competition was held by the American Philosophical Association. And it was, are there human rights? I wrote a paper to submit for that, uh, arguing the objectivist viewpoint with very little reference to Ayn Rand because I was scared. But some, enough, maybe. Anyway, it didn't even get a rejection letter. I mean, it just... No. And uh, I tried to publish also on my theory of teleology, which was rejected. And I tried to give a speech on Ayn Rand's theory of free will to my department. And I was told afterwards, you've done good work in the past. We're willing to overlook this. It's an anomaly. You screwed up on that. But you, you know, we're not going to judge you by that terrible set of ideas you came out with. Very generous of them. This is, well, I won't rail on about that. So you can't 
get anywhere. It's almost impossible to get anywhere with good, strong, right, correct ideas in academia, but you can on the web. Doing it right now. Okay, here's uh, Marvin. What is the connection between design styles and philosophy? E.g. is Zen design minimalism influenced by Zen Buddhism? Is the ornamentation in the Rococo and geometry in the Art Deco connected to the philosophy of the time? It's only connected in a very indirect way. The philosophy of the times uh, creates its own psychoepistemology. Maybe I should back up. Design is not fine art. Design is ornamentation, the decoration of a utilitarian object. Uh, my, my shirt has a plaid pattern. That's a design. And so we're not talking about Rembrandt here. We're, we're talking about oh, uh, Frank Lloyd Wright stained glass windows are very nice. What results in the different kinds of design that appeal to different people and therefore to the artist who makes them? And so he makes them the way he does. It's your preferred psychoepistemology, your preferred method of thinking. So uh, if you if you don't get very abstract, now this is this is a hypothesis. I can't prove this. My suggestion is if you stick close to the perceptual level, shun abstractions, you will not respond to designs that are geometrical and that leave clean, uh, integrated, uh, clean spaces and integrated forms. You're likely to like something that is very dense, has a lot of movement and uh, detail, but no overall uh, structure or very little. If you are uh, comfortable with abstractions, you're more likely to like more uh, orderly, higher level orderly designs. There's more to it than that, but I think that's the way it, it works. Um, Indian design, you know, the all the um, intertwining curlicue things, absolutely revolts me. And Indian music is the same way. The ragas are uh, dense, impenetrable thickets. And I can't stand that. Even as a young boy, about 10 or 12, I liked Salvador Dali. The only thing I knew was persistence of memory, the one with the melting watches. I liked it because it was psychoepistemologically good. I would say now it was clean, open form, 
pure colors, but realistic. The design element of the painting, not the painting is also things besides composition and the issues I'm talking about now, but I've always liked uh, what you might call abstract designs that make sense. And that's because of, that's my method of thinking. At least that's, I can't prove that, but I think that's the answer to it. So it's very indirect. It's not from some theory about what design ought to be. It's from the style of cognition of the culture and of the artist, if he's a typical member of that culture. So no, I, I don't think uh, Zen design is Zen min minimalism is influenced by Zen Buddhism in any direct way. But Zen is, is a stark philosophy. It is not an empiricist philosophy of detail. It's a big picture. Granted, the big picture is contradictory, but it is more abstract than, uh, say, British philosophy. Um, we're getting a lot of questions, I understand. So uh, let's see, what time is it? Oh, it's real past time. I can go on longer. Uh, Daniel, are you there? Can you tell me how many more? About 15. So it might be oh, well, then we do episode. have to have we do have to have another session, but let me just round it out with one more question. Okay, it's already in the chat. Okay. Abdullah, what are the main objectives one has to keep in mind if he were to survive and flourish in an irrational society? Besides moral judgment, of course, because Ayn Rand said the main thing is to judge. Um, I think maybe this is more uh, on um, happiness in an irrational society. I think you have to take a philosophical perspective. What do I mean by that? If you're troubled by you know, look at the spending that Biden is doing, or look at how we're stepping aside, letting China attack Taiwan. Uh, I mean, you know, talk about attacking Taiwan. I don't think they're going to do it. Look at this bad thing and that bad thing. We're shutting down uh, uh, fossil fuels and trying to pretend that batteries don't take fossil fuels to be charged. So, it's very upsetting and discouraging. Take a philosophical view. We, it goes back to that first question. We are infinitely more logical and rational as a culture than 99% of the cultures in the history of man. You're living in the midst of undreamt of wealth, a, a society where you can ask a question of a person you've never met, but agree with intellectually over a means of communication that didn't exist a few years ago. 
and it doesn't cost you anything. Uh, you can get the answer to any question by just saying, Alexa, who starred in High Noon? High Noon stars include Gary Cooper, Grace Kelly, and Thomas Mitchell. Can you, uh, I don't know if you heard that, but she answered it. Gary Cooper, Grace Kelly, and Tom Mitchell. So uh, this, the whole body of human knowledge is at your fingertips. So in one sense, if you take a, hill, a philosophical perspective and you realize most human beings just planted rice in the patties and died by the time they were 40 or before, you don't get so troubled, but there's another more specific thing that philosophy can uh, teach you and help you with in this regard. You don't own other people. Other people have free will. They're not living for you. They do not owe you getting the right ideas and agreeing with you. They don't owe you anything other than, and in the end, not using physical force on you. They don't eat, they don't really owe you rationality. They can be irrational and destroy themselves as long as they don't inflict it through physical force on you. It's immoral, yeah, but they don't owe you being moral. So you have to really, really take seriously that other people have free will and they make their own choices and you don't control them. You can't control them. The most you can do is hold out an offer. That's the most you can do, whether it's a monetary issue or an intellectual issue. That is very common, I find. And it's true. It's very realistic. So I think we should stop there uh, and we can have another session. I don't know whether it will be next week um, or if something will come up that I really think we should talk about first. So maybe next Monday, maybe something even more exciting next Monday, if something more exciting comes along. Thank you for uh, attending this, and I hope to see you next Monday. Bye.